morning, church family. Hello to those who are joining us online, and a special welcome to guests who are visiting with us this morning, including Gary and Carol Fry. I don't know if you saw them here today, back in town visiting us. It's great to have you all back. It's good to see your faces. If you're newer to our church, we are in a season in which we as a church are zeroed in on discipleship, which is just a fancy word for following Jesus and becoming more like him, but we don't believe that's a solo project. We are actually committed to coming alongside each other on that journey to help each other as disciples. So if you're looking to be discipled or to disciple somebody, please do reach out to the church office so we can help you get set up with such a relationship. Let's pray now. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. The kids in the Higgins family are in a big monster soup phase at the moment. Monster soup is when you're in the playground, on, on the playground or in the backyard, and you basically, you pile up all the dirt and rocks and leaves and sticks that you can, and then you pour water on the whole thing uh, to make a big muddy mess that apparently reminds certain children of what a monster might consider to be soup. Now... <clears throat> If we ever wanted to hypothetically pull them away from monster soup, there are two ways that we could attempt to do that, I think. We could, A, try to convince them that playing monster soup is bad, or B, we could point them to an even better alternative. So, in other words, A would be something like, stop playing in the mud, you're getting messy. B would be something like, Stop playing in the mud. We've got tickets to the carnival. Question. If our dabbling in sin is something like playing in the mud, which of those approaches does Jesus take with us? In other words, how does Jesus attempt to pull us out of the mud? Is his fundamental message Stop playing in the mud, you're getting filthy. Or is it, stop playing in the mud, I got his tickets to the carnival. Today we'll find out. Would you turn with me to Mark 10 if you haven't already? Thanks for reading that, Lynn. We're already on the second to last week of this series entitled The Way. And you know, uh, in 10 weeks of this series, I haven't yet made a single Mandalorian joke. And I know some of you have actually been disappointed at that restraint that I've shown. Uh, but that term, the way, comes up several times in, in Mark 8, 22 to 10, 52, because in this section, Jesus is unfolding the way to his disciples. He's instructing them in these chapters about what it will look like to follow him, follow him all the way to the cross. And in many of the passages we've explored in previous weeks, Jesus has placed a heavy emphasis on the cost of following him. In fact, some of you have told me that at moments it maybe has felt this fall like it's been cost, 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 like passage after passage of Jesus saying some version of, if you want to follow me, you can't play in the mud. You can't play in the mud of unrestrained self-expression. You can't play in the mud of prayerless self-reliance. You can't play in the mud of chasing status or the mud of judgmentalism or the mud of extramarital sex. All that mud 
is now off limits, according to the passages that we've been reading this fall. And I don't know how every individual here has experienced this section of Mark's gospel that we've been studying, but I'll admit that there are moments in which I personally have started to think, okay, I get that the mud isn't good for me, and that it isn't what God wants, and that I'd have to get clean after playing in it. But the mud is really fun. So if following Jesus really means no more playing in the mud, is it really worth it? Like I know myself, long term, I'm only going to follow Jesus if I'm convinced that what he's offering is better than the mud and therefore worth leaving the mud to obtain. Anybody else? So again, is following Jesus better than playing in the mud of all the other things you and I treasure? There are 15 verses in today's passage. The first 11 of those verses record this interaction between Jesus and this man who's sometimes known as the rich young ruler. But here's the thing. We've preached parallel passages of that encounter, parallel versions of that encounter before here at Northside, actually multiple times in recent years. So I'm only going to briefly summarize verses 17 to 27 today. That'll allow us to spend more of our time on the last four verses of today's passage, verses 28 to 31 that are unique to Mark's gospel, not found in any of the other accounts of this story that we've preached before. I, think there's, I, I do think there's a word from God in those four verses especially uh, that somebody might need to hear this morning. First, though, we do need to review verses 17 to 27. Uh, so I'm going to read those verses and pause along the way for comment. Quick background again so we can reorient ourselves. If you were here last week, you may remember that Jesus has just gotten done telling his disciples that a person can only enter the kingdom of God like a child with humble dependence. Now that assertion is going to play out in a concrete interaction. Will this individual who's talking to Jesus be able to come to Jesus like a dependent little child? Let's find out. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? call this man the rich young ruler because in verse 22 we're going to find out that he's rich matthew's gospel tells us he's young luke's gospel tells us he's a ruler for some reason this man feels compelled to come to jesus with this question even though every rabbi around would have given him the same exact answer to this question namely well sir you inherit eternal life by obeying the law by keeping god's commandments Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, if you're coming to somebody good to answer this question, you should really only be trusting God's answer to this question. So Jesus takes him to God's own answer to this question, basically from the second half of the Ten Commandments. He says, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Pause with me and consider this question. If the almost universally held belief for Jewish people at this time was that you inherit eternal life by keeping the law, 
and if this man knows the law, which assumes that he does, and if this man believes he is obeying the law, which he says he is. Why is he still coming to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life? Some of you know why. You know because you've always been the good kid, the rule follower. And like this rich young ruler, you still sense that there's something missing. This rich young ruler is experiencing the feeling that many of us have felt, that despite how good he's been, he senses that eternal life is still just beyond his grasp. And that intuition of his is exactly right. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Once again, we've preached this interaction from the other gospel accounts a few times before, but just three quick hitters here on these verses. One, Jesus doesn't think the way that some people think today, namely, you're rich, so you must be evil. We know Jesus doesn't think that way because Jesus doesn't refute the man's claims to moral uprightness back in verse 20. At the same time, Jesus also doesn't think the way the disciples did, which was, you're rich, so you must be good. Despite the rich young ruler's material blessing and moral diligence, he still hadn't been good enough to obtain eternal life, according to Jesus. It's an important two-part clarification, I think, for a congregation like ours in the Chicago suburbs, most of whom are quite wealthy according to the standards of Jesus' day, even if we don't feel it according to our own standards. That A, we must not assume that our neighbors who are wealthy obtain their wealth by sin. And B, we also must not assume that our material blessing means that God is pleased with us. It's not necessarily the case. That's first observation. Second, we encounter here Jesus' astoundingly revolutionary claim that eternal life isn't found in being good, but rather in following him. Instead of Jesus holding up rule-keeping as the ultimate bar to be attained to inherit eternal life, he says, yeah, you've kept the rules, but the reason that you still sense a lack is that you're not yet following me. So what about you? Are, are you looking for life in your ethics or in your Savior? Maybe you share the belief system of the presiding minister at a funeral I attended this past week. She summarized her comments about the deceased like this. Here was a good person who tried his best. What more could be expected of any of us? Are you hoping that's how God views it? As long as your good outweighs your bad, or as long as you generally were a decent person, or as long as you didn't do any of the really bad things, God, he'll let some of the not-so-good stuff slide. Jesus says no. Even if you're one of the greatest rule keepers around, even if you're one of the most morally upright people in existence, you still lack the one thing needed for eternal life if you're not following me. Number three, what about the the whole sell your stuff bit. This is the only person that Jesus ever tells to do this. 
sell everything and give to the poor, which raises the question, why did this rich young ruler have to do what Jesus asks nobody else to do? The answer flows directly from what we just noted a moment ago, namely, that there is no hope of eternal life apart from following Jesus. And so Jesus knows that this particular man will never truly be able to follow him without first parting with his wealth. Put it differently, there can only be one thing on that number one spot in our hearts. There's only room for one on the throne right in here. So whatever's there, Jesus can, we can expect Jesus to confront us on that thing. Because he wants that throne in our hearts. The rich young ruler had set his possessions in the place that only Jesus was meant to hold. How do we see that play out in the passage? Well, he's disheartened, verse 22, at Jesus' words. Which Tim Keller points out is the same word Mark uses for what Jesus feels a few chapters later in Gethsemane. The night before he goes to the cross. As he is reflecting on the prospect of losing his father. You see the contrast? Losing wealth is to this rich young ruler. What losing the father is to Jesus. So with great love in his heart. Jesus extends a black and white invitation to this man to climb out of the mud of possessions, to obtain something greater. Because Jesus knows that until this man's wealth is displaced from that throne in his heart, he'll never be able to truly follow Jesus. That's sobering. I'll speak for myself, it's sobering for me. Because what if you and I, what if, what if we are guilty of that same disordered affection that this man had? After all, the Bible speaks as though it's possible for any amount of money to keep us from Jesus. So I've been drawing from Tim Keller in this analysis. Listen to him now on some warning signs. How do you know, he says, that money isn't just money to you? Here are some of the signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked harder or might be a better person, and it gets under your skin. When that happens, you have one foot in the trap because then it's no longer just a tool, it's the scorecard. It's your essence, your identity. As countercultural friends, as Jesus' approach to money seems in the affluent place and time where you and I live, it actually wasn't any less shocking to Jesus' original hearers, which is why he has to make sure that they heard him. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. He said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. To clarify, wealth, it's not that wealth is a sin that keeps us from God, it's that we all have sin that keeps us from God, and wealth has a way of hiding that sin from our sight. I'll say that again. It's not that wealth is a sin that keeps us from God, it's 
that we all have sin that keeps us from God, and wealth has a way of hiding that sin from our sight, blinding us to it. After all, it's not just impossible for rich people to be saved, right? According to verse 27, it's impossible for anyone to be saved. And that's exactly why, like Pastor Sean showed us last week, the only way to come to God is like dependent children, empty-handed, pleading not our possessions or our merits, but only pleading the merits of Jesus on our behalf that make our salvation possible. But coming to Jesus empty-handed is just flat-out harder to do when we start out with lots of stuff in our hands. That's the danger of wealth, and that's why here at Northside we challenge each other on it as often as we do. So all of that, verses 17 to 27, to s- set up to get to the fresh material that I really want us to focus on today, which is verses 28 to 31. Uh, once again, zooming out on the last couple chapters, we've been challenged on our marriages, we've been challenged on our comfort level with things that cause us to sin, and now we've been challenged on our relationship to wealth. Passage after passage, the depiction of the cost of following Jesus has been clear and it's been sobering. Maybe I'm the only one, but if we're honest, I think many of us may be starting to ask as we work our way through this section of Mark's gospel, is it worth it? Like after all, I mean, you know how relaxing it is to be able to indulge in nice dinners that somebody else cooks for you. You may know how a little dip of the toes into an extramarital relationship can reintroduce a missing sense of thrill. You may know how the pursuit of elite status in your line of work can earn you some incredibly rewarding pats on the back. If following Jesus means displacing those other things that are naturally uppermost in our affections, is following Jesus really worth it? In these four verses, Jesus is going to answer that, is it worth it question with regards to possessions and position. I'm going to summarize each using just uh, phrasing I got from Danny Aiken in these little titles because I couldn't improve upon them. Uh, First, in verses 28 to 30, leave a little, get a lot. Leave a little, get a lot. Let's reread verses 28 to 30. Peter began to say to him, see, we, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. First question, what is your house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands that you've had to leave for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. For the rich young ruler, it was his possessions. For someone else, it's the romantic relationship that doesn't match God's design. For all of us, it's something. What have you had to leave? Or what do you sense you are being called to leave because it naturally holds first place in your heart? Second question, following on that. What's your biggest fear in leaving behind what God has called you to leave behind? Like, do you fear that you'll miss out on the fullness of what this life has to offer if you lay that thing down? 
Do you fear that you'll lack a sense of self-worth, that you'll, you won't know who you are anymore? Or maybe you just fear that you'll be embarrassed or empty or bored. In response to those fears, Jesus makes a promise, starting in verse 29. He makes it emphatically with a truly I say to you. It's a promise of eternal life in the age to come, but it's also a promise for this life in the here and now. Did you catch that? Verses 29 and 30. Now, in the, who not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life but how can that be I'm, spe I'm specifically wondering about the now in this time part like can this be true let's get concrete about it for a moment homes houses you're telling me that if i miss out on having the house that i could have if i would climb the corporate ladder for example in order and i miss out on that because i'm prioritizing family and ministry or if i like many have if i literally were to leave my home in order to share the gospel with people in a, another country, you're telling me that God is really going to give me a hundredfold in houses in this time? Family members. It's the other item on the list, right? You're telling me that if I disappoint my parents by following the career path God has called me to instead of the one they'd be more proud of. Or... If my siblings disown me because I can't affirm their lifestyles, or if my children are estranged from me because they think Christianity is narrow-minded, you're telling me that Jesus is going to really give me a hundredfold in family in this lifetime? Or, final item in the list, lands. Lands were financial security, so... You're telling me that if I let go of maximizing the investment portfolio that could provide me with security in my later years, Jesus is going to provide me with a hundredfold in lands in this lifetime? Yes. And here's how he does it. Some of you know how he does it. Two-part answer. First, he does it through the new family of faith that we join by virtue of our being united with Christ. So sure, I, I might have left my home. But now I'm welcomed into a hundred homes where the believers who reside there treat me as if I belong, just as much as they do. Sure, I may have been cut off from my family, as many believers around the world have. But now I have a hundred brothers and sisters committed to me, not on the basis of the blood in our veins, but on the basis of the blood of Christ that purchased all of our freedom. And sure, my portfolio, it might be lighter on lands than it could have otherwise been if I hadn't been generous. But... Now I have a hundred folks eager to share with me in my time of need, just as I shared with them in their time of need. In other words, part of the fulfillment of this promise is the community that exists among brothers and sisters in Christ, the community that had the Roman Empire so confused in the first and second centuries because it involved sharing of life and bonds more intimate than even any biological kinship bonds that they had ever seen. But what about the missionary, for example, who does go to some unreached place alone, toils away for many years without seeing many, if any, people come to Christ. Such a missionary does leave home in comfort, but finds no other believers there in the place where they serve. Does this promise not apply to them? Here's how John Piper addresses that question, and this is the second part 
of the two-part answer. Surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. He himself makes up for every loss. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back a hundred times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship of a brother, you get back a hundred times the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back a hundred times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Isn't what Jesus is saying to prospective missionaries just this? I promise to work for you and to be for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. That's the way Hudson Taylor took it, Piper notes, because at the end of his 50 years of missionary labor in China, he said, I never made a sacrifice. Did you know that there's an intimacy with Christ available to you that's so good that it can make you feel like you never sacrificed anything? Even if you gave up homes and family and lands along the way. I love how Jesus' words to us aren't, what's wrong with you for wanting homes and family and lands? Instead, he says to us, you don't even know a fraction of the deeper fulfillment that your joy in those homes and family and lands was meant to point you to. And I don't know about you, but I need that word from Jesus. Because there's a lot of enjoyment I get out of playing in the mud. If Jesus came along barking at me to shape up, I'd try, but I know myself. I'd, I'd come right back to that mud. The only thing that could possibly be powerful enough to compel me to change and, and to change for good is if someone were to come along holding out an even greater source of joy. And he has in intimacy with himself. Experienced in part through a Christ-saturated community of believers like this one right here. He has every right to just command us to get out of the mud. He does, to, to just do what we should do. And let's say he was going to offer rewards. Even then, he has every right to say, okay, here's the deal. You get a miserable life here, but I can promise you a happy afterlife. He could say that, but it's even better than that. And if this part is true about the blessings in this life, which it is, then the rich young ruler wasn't wrong because he chose possessions. He was wrong because he chose Lesser possessions over greater possessions. Lesser joy over greater joy. So listen to the hope in Peter's words, his voice as he says these words in verse 28. See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus affirms him, effectively saying, you're right, Peter, to surmise that you'll be blessed for laying down what you've laid down. In fact, you're going to share in everything that's mine. That will include persecutions in this life, verse 30. If I'm persecuted, Peter, you will be also still. When it's all said and done, Peter, you will have experienced the age to come breaking into this age in such a way that you'll be able to say, I never made a sacrifice. Do you believe that today? Sure, Jesus is calling us to leave behind what little we have, to come to him empty-handed. But once we have come to him empty-handed, he wants to give us a whole lot. 
finally position. Be last, come in first. Be last, come in first. Verse 31. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. In the time and place where we live, it's easy for followers of Jesus to start to feel like we're missing out, like we're falling behind. We watch our neighbors getting ahead of us, socially, professionally, financially, and we watch them getting their kids ahead of our kids on various metrics that are considered meaningful. And we start to think to ourselves, man, it doesn't feel good to be last. If I start to prioritize what they prioritize, then maybe I won't need to come in last anymore. Sarah recently showed me a post asking if anyone in our town had a recommendation for a pre-K prep math tutor for a three-year-old. You see that, and you can start to think, man, I'm not pursuing what everybody else is pursuing. I'm going to fall behind. And honestly, that doesn't just apply to our unbelieving neighbors. It's fellow Christians on the North Shore, too. It's us, right? All of us are prone to be roped in when we meet somebody living a version of Christianity that's comfortable, that fits into their schedule when convenient, that sort of sits as a cherry on top of a well-rounded, respectable life. And so they seemingly get to be Christian and still be first in the opinion of the community. Seems like the best of all worlds. But that's the religion of the rich young ruler. And we've seen for two months now that that's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. Here's how Warren Wearsby explains verse 31. To the general public, the rich young ruler stood first, and the poor disciples stood last. But God saw things from the perspective of eternity. And the first become last, while the last become first. Those who are first in their own eyes will be last in God's eyes, but those who are last in their own eyes will be rewarded as first. We don't need to be jealous of those who seem to be first. Still, I love that Jesus' words here aren't just a mere rebuke of wanting to be first. Because if I'm honest, I, I really want to be first. If score is being kept, doesn't really matter what it is, I want to win. And I've, I've always felt that way, and I've always kind of believed or felt that there's at least a tiny bit of something in that desire that has to be from God. At least I hope it is. And I think there is, which is why Jesus doesn't say, forget being first, why do you want that? But what's he say instead? Be first when it matters in the age to come. And we do so by foregoing being first here. So instead of envying those around us who are first, let's set aside the things that we're naturally prone to pursue in order to chase the greatest treasure, intimacy with Christ. And in thereby ordering ourselves last in this life, we'll find ourselves engaged in a Christ-sanctioned pursuit of greatness in the life to come. Our big idea today is this. When we leave what we treasure in order to follow Christ, we will receive more from him than what we laid down. When we leave, we've got our hands full, we're wealthy, we've got possessions, we've got abundance. When we leave that in order to follow Christ, we will receive more from him than what we laid down. Friends, in the end, even those things in this world that get our hearts beating the fastest turn out to be monster soup 
mud puddle. As I've been using that analogy, some of you have heard echoes of a classic C.S. Lewis quote. It would seem, he says, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I wonder how many here this morning may have missed that fundamental aspect of discipleship, maybe even for years, that the message of Jesus, the message of this series, it's not, hey, following Jesus is going to be pretty miserable now, and you'll have to say no to everything enjoyable about this life, but at least you'll get to heaven. No. The message is, those who follow Jesus get everything Jesus has, even now. Persecutions, yes, but homes, family, lands, even now, because in him, the future age has broken in to the present. How did that happen? Well, 2,000 years ago, the richest ruler ever to exist voluntarily left the riches of heaven to lower himself from first to last, even going so far as to die in our place, experiencing separation from God on that cross so that you and I would never have to. And then when God raised him from the dead, the future age of resurrection broke into the here and now and was inaugurated for all who are united to Christ. And how can we be united to him? Not by obeying really well. Even the morally upright rich young ruler couldn't earn God's favor by his good deeds because the good news of Jesus Christ isn't due, but done. Imagine the rich young ruler had heeded Jesus' command. Even the selling of his wealth wouldn't have been what saved him. It would have been the work of Jesus on the cross that saved him. It's just that the release of his possessions, as Jesus commanded, would have finally enabled him to come to Jesus with the requisite empty-handedness to receive that gift. If you haven't yet accepted the invitation to follow Jesus, please do consider the cost before you do. But, while considering what you'll have to lay down in order to approach Christ empty-handed, hear the call of this passage to also look to the treasure that awaits. On the other side is joy, far beyond what you and I could have ever imagined. First and foremost, because of the ultimate prize of intimacy in Jesus Christ himself. If you have been following Jesus for some time, but maybe these last couple months or years have worn you down because all you've been able to see are the so-called sacrifices required to follow Jesus. Get your eyes off yourself and fix them on what's yours now in Christ. Make it your ambition to avail yourself of the fullness of blessing that's found in him, to enjoy him this week. And as you do, don't be surprised if find new strength for the journey toward that day when eternal life will be ours in full measure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word to us isn't do but done. That your call to us isn't experience misery now for pleasure later, but rather 
that you cause the future age of glory to break into the present in such a way that we get now everything that belongs to Christ. When that involves persecution, as we face suffering, as Christ suffered, help us to bear it with gladness. But Lord, help us to see and be grateful for the blessing, the richness of blessing that is ours in you, in relationship with you first and foremost, and as experienced in the community of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. We do this from time to time, and I'm not going to make a big deal of this or force it, but I do just want to make an opportunity before we close out our service with a couple of worship songs. If there's somebody here this morning who has a word to share, a story of how you laid something down to follow Christ, and he made good on this promise to give you back a hundredfold, and that story has just been on your chest, for these last 20, 30 minutes and you want to share it, I want to invite you to just come up to this microphone right down here on the ground and grab the microphone and just share. Just keep it short for us, 30 seconds. And again, if there is nobody right away, we won't force it. But if there is somebody, I don't want to rob the congregation of an opportunity to hear a testimony of giving glory to God for making good on this promise of a hundredfold now in this life in addition to eternal life in the age to come. Is there anyone who has a story like that that they want to stand up and come up to the microphone and share with the congregation?